0: You're listening to the Driving Net Profit with Zero Emissions podcast, a monthly show with best practice net zero stories of leading businesses responding to climate change. You're with award-winning author and 100% Renewables co-CEO, Barbara Albert. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Driving Net Profit with Zero Emissions podcast. I'm Barbara Albert, co-CEO of 100% Renewables, a consultancy specialized in the development of net zero strategies. When we develop net zero strategies for our clients, we typically look at energy efficiency, renewable energy and supply chain opportunities. A great deal of our work is developing business cases for how an organization can be more energy efficient, such as lighting replacements, sizing, solar installations, helping our clients transition their fleet or making the right procurement choices. Part of our work is also looking at the leadership, governance, and change management that organizations need to undergo to get on and stay on a path towards net zero emissions. In today's podcast, we are going to investigate how behavioral science can help drive net profit with zero emissions. We want to look into how organizations can inspire and motivate their employees, suppliers, and customers to make and sustain changes in behavior at all levels that make striving towards net zero emissions possible, collaborative, and successful. Joining me today are Dr. Juliet Tobias Webb and Dr. Philippe Bourgeon. Dr. Juliet Tobias-Webb is a Chief Behavioral Scientist, Senior MBA Lecturer, Superstar of STEM, and soon to be Antarctica Explorer. Juliet has a PhD in Experimental Psychology from Cambridge University and has worked for a range of leading government and corporate organizations to develop programs of work, encouraging and measuring positive behavior change. She has a range of academic and commercial experience and runs her own behavioral science consultancy. She has published articles in many leading neuroscience and psychology journals and is featured in a range of media outlets such as Triple J Hack and the Australian Financial Review. Dr. Philippe Bujon is an applied behavioral scientist at Rare, a global nonprofit that for the last 45 years has been a leader in environmental behavior change efforts. Based out their internal nudge unit, the Center for Behavior and the Environment, Philip's work focuses on translating the latest insights from the behavioral sciences into behavior change interventions for the commercial, government, and nonprofit sectors. He holds a PhD in behavioral neuroscience from the University of Cambridge, where prior to joining Rare, he studied how the brain's biological constraints lead to predictable biases in the way we make choices. Hi, Juliet and Philip, and welcome to the Driving Net Profit with Zero Emissions show. Philippe, having just started a podcast with your bio, you studied how the brain's biological constraints lead to predictable biases. I have always been interested in the biases we have as humans. Could you tell us more about predictable biases and whether they are related to cognitive biases? Yeah, definitely.
1: So that's something we're going to dig into today also. Uh, but to give you a quick introduction of kind of what a, a choice bias or a cognitive bias is, it's a pattern of behavior that is replicable that happens because of a, a specific context or because of a specific variable being presented to someone. So to put that into perspective, most humans, for example, have this bias where we are risk averse. Um, so we tend to dislike options that are presented to us that are uncertain. And that is a cognitive bias. Um, So in a given situation, if you present something with something that someone with something that is uncertain, we will usually avoid it. Um, And we say that that biases choices. And that's what I studied uh, before joining Rare.
0: And Juliet, I noticed in your bio that it says you are an Antarctica, soon to be Antarctica explorer. Tell us more about that. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm part of a cohort of 100 women going to
2: Antarctica to, to look at basically how we can help with the impact of climate change. And um, from a behavioural perspective, obviously, there's many solutions to climate change. I'm, I'm definitely supporter that there will be technology solutions. You know, there'll be a variety of solutions, but behaviour changes is, is often a key element there. We've got to change people's um, behaviour.
0: So what exactly is behavioural
2: science? So behavioural science is really about understanding and then designing for human decision making. It can, can sort of vary from a variety of different contexts. We know our behaviour changes um, sometimes at work, from, from home life, but really so what behavioural scientists do is they bring in the latest kind of research and evidence from economics, um, from, from uh, psychology, from a range of different academic disciplines to, to, to and combine them in a practical way to therefore understand and shift behaviour if I can give an example, so from previously, you know, we still actually do this, but previously economists really thought that people were these very rational beings, so they operated in their best interest, they calculated the cost of benefits of all their actions, Uh, but what we know is that actually humans aren't like that. We act more like Homer Simpson and we have those dull moments. We um, walk to a buffet and we don't calculate the cost and benefit of everything that we eat. We often act against our self-interest, so if you've ever tried to save for something and then in the immediate time of even after just committing to saving spending more money then you do realize right that that we are these um irrational beings and and yet even today even though i said we've kind of shifted from that from an economic perspective people and individuals still design for these rational human beings so if you've ever sent a really long email or received a really long email and expected others to read it or you've been expected to read it then you know that we're still kind of not always designing for humans as we are, but rather these kind of traditional economic beings. So behavioural science is really about understanding again and developing solutions to help people make better decisions for themselves and and
0: shift um, people's behaviour in in positive ways. I'm fascinated by behavioural science and also by the fact that most of our decisions happen on autopilot most of the times. And I also know from personal experience that there are only so many um, active decisions I can make and problems I can solve throughout the day before it's enough and I know that it's time for a break. So I'd like to find out more from you what really drives our behavior.
1: Yes, I could probably jump in on this one. Um, so actually it was saying kind of the way behavioral science thinks about decision making if you want a a simple analogy, we think about it in two systems. Uh, so there's one that is more automatic and it's what she was explaining, it's the more irrational side, Uh, it's efficient and fast, um, but it's the one that's also prone to cognitive biases like I was talking about earlier. But then there's also another version of basically our decision-making that is more rational, that is slower, and that is more thought of if you want. That's the one we like to think of ourselves as. And when you think about decision-making, you really have to see these two systems as kind of a spectrum and target and think about basically what what system is driving a specific decision and also how different variables in someone's environment are going to be interacting with the system. Um, So one really good way of thinking about this, so at Rare, we try to simplify everything and we think of it as there's six basically behavior change levers um, that apply to our decision-making And three of them are going to be really targeting this more rational side of us, so that the second system, and three of them are gonna be targeting this more irrational side. Um, So the first three are the ones that we actually tend to to think of when we think behavior change. It's things like uh, rules and regulations, so putting in place new laws, material incentives, so changing the cost of things, um, or even information, which is what most people do in this field, it's really pump people with information. But there's also three other things that drive behavior, and that's really our social environment, um, we are social beings. We like to look at what others are doing and, and think about how others are thinking about us. Um, so that drives a lot of behavior. We are also emotional beings. Um, so a lot of the time we like to think we're super, super rational, but emotions drive a lot of our decisions. And the last part, the last lever here is what we call choice architecture. Right? So for anyone who's ever heard of nudging, and nudging works basically because we can change different aspects of choices, of our choice environment to basically encourage specific options um, to be selected by different people. So when I go to the grocery store, for example, what I see on food is a price and usually calories, or I think necessarily it's kilojoules. Um, And so when you look at these things, basically your attention is drawn to price and kilojoules. Uh, But in that decision, you could also be thinking about the carbon footprint of the food, where it's coming from, but our attention is not drawn to that. And so if you change this, this is what we call choice architecture. It's essentially where you drive attention and what you remind people of in a a specific decision. So again, it's kind of these six levers. Three are the more rational, three are the more irrational. But that's how we think about what drives behavior.
0: That's so interesting. So you mentioned uh, choice architecture. You said that if the label on on packaging showed us additional information so not just... uh, the beloved kilojoules and um you know the, the carbohydrates the proteins the price uh, whatever else is on the label but what if it showed us the carbon footprint that would play an influencing factor in our decision as to whether we would buy the product or not
1: yeah so it depends obviously what is inherently driving your decision making so if you're someone who doesn't really care about your carbon footprint that probably wouldn't change much but let's say you are someone who sees themselves as a green person who cares about their carbon footprint at that moment of decision, if you see actually what is the carbon impact of selecting a food, that will have an impact on your decision. So it's not just about price, it's not just about kilojoules anymore, you have another variable that you're paying attention to. Um, and there have been studies on this that actually do show that people do reduce, reduce, for example, meat consumption uh, when they do see the carbon footprint of meat. Um, so it is a tiny, tiny thing you can do in the environment, and it's what we call choice architecture. Um, and it is a very important part of how you change people's behaviour.
2: Yeah, and if I could add, I think, um, you know, what we are saying before about there are different levers, and so sometimes there will be more effective levers than others, and, and sometimes there are kind of core levers, so um, if we think about the the laws and regulations, uh, that's really useful to help people and guide people in, in what they should do. But most people that we know I'm not going to point any fingers here but most people that we know know that you shouldn't speed and have probably drifted over the speed limit every now and again right so we know rules and regulations but people still break those or forget about them or, or in the moment, you know, go over them. Um, similarly, you know, we, we talked about sometimes information is really good. People need to know what is good and what is bad behaviour or um, how to eat healthy. But it doesn't stop us. We all know how we or most of us know at least some indication of how we should eat healthier, but we don't always do that. And then there's the in the moment kind of um, aspects of the, of the choice architecture as well. of Then how do you in the moment direct people's um, attention or, or think about their choice architecture in that way. So I think that's also really useful to to think about is, um, especially thinking particularly about climate changes, there's different, there'll be different phases, particularly um, based on the different countries or companies of where they need to start first. Um, But all of those aspects are are really important to have in place and think about.
0: Yeah, that's, that's such a good comment. I want to turn our attention to behavior change programs they have typically been run in the past. How have organizations gone about behavior change in relation to energy or climate? In our experience, behavior change in organizations has typically been about running campaigns and putting stickers on bins and making sure that equipment is turned off, like flick the switch to turn off the lights. Do you think that this is an effective way to achieve sustained change? And if not, what will be flawed about that approach? What makes that approach work or not work?
1: Yeah, so in addition to to kind of what you're saying, um, one big thing that we see a lot, especially when it comes to climate change, is that the general solution is either make it more expensive or make basically the green option cheaper, or information, right? Give people information. And then there's this other aspect of what you're mentioning, where it's like, put stickers or something, show people reminders. So these three things are three different levers. Um, you can think of them as information in one case, the other one is a material incentive, and the third one is, again, interacting with this choice architecture. At the time of choice, you're reminding people. And these are three great strategies for specific contexts, um, but we tend to just rely on these three. Um, And it's important to know that there's still three others that you can use for different contexts um, and that you can use for different situations. And I think one of the big failings of programs is that we tend to just jump right away and assume that these three levers are going to be the useful thing um, when, in fact, there are others that might be more appropriate. Um, So reminders are really good on bids, for example, because at that moment, you're making decisions, so you'll know what you're looking at. But then when you're thinking about telling people about information about Um, why it's important to turn off the lights. Well, you might not be thinking about that information when you're turning off the light, right? So again, a reminder might be good. um, But then if no one in the office is turning off the lights, well, then you have the social influence that's pushing against you. So it's important then to think, okay, what's the other lever I can use? And I think that's one big failing of this side, really, of fighting climate change.
2: Yeah, and I would say it's jumping into the solution phase too early. So... uh, Actually, really understanding, uh, having first of all, like a clear definition of the behaviour that you want to change. So, uh, so obviously, climate change is is quite large. So it could be we want people to, and even saving energy. How do we get an organisation to to save on energy or something? Is a large goal with not a clear or could have many behaviours. So sometimes it's really useful for organisations to just say, what is the behavior that will achieve that where it's getting people to flip off flick off the switches like right before they leave or something like that so clear on their behavior to begin then understanding why it doesn't happen can actually save companies a lot right in you know, before they implement something that doesn't work so i'm um, actually understanding why that behavior isn't occurring. Um, often we think that that can take a lot of time, but it doesn't have to. But actually, going out and either doing it yourself um, or you know, um, um, hearing from the people that are engaging in that behaviour is is really important. So. Defining the problem, understanding why it's happening, and then going into that solution phase. Because we naturally, I mean, working with you know, different organisations of ten years, everyone goes and thinks that they know what the solution is. But if you miss it, you you miss the opportunity. You can miss the, a higher impact opportunity, or you can build something that doesn't work, and it's because you haven't addressed the actual uh, why it's happening. And then the kind of experimentation phase of well. Like let's test this and see. the actual return on investment is and how much this actually did shift people's
0: behavior yeah that that makes sense so you start with the why you look at the behavior that you want to change and then you define solutions that might work um, in helping you achieve the objective now what if the objective is uh to achieve net zero emissions i'd like to talk about how behavioral science can help us with that So for the listeners that don't know, net zero emissions is a state where on balance, we don't add more greenhouse gas emissions to the atmosphere than we are removing. Uh, And to achieve this, we need to reforest, be more energy efficient, install solar panels on our roofs, use battery storage, purchase renewables, enable a circular economy, transition our vehicles to electric, phase out gas, change our industrial processes and optimize agricultural systems, implement supply chain initiatives, the list is is big. Most of these measures will require some degree of behavioral change because it ultimately is about people making decisions. People, policymakers and businesses need to make active choices to implement these changes. So in my opinion, I see multiple aspects of how behavioral science can help us achieve net zero emissions. And because this podcast is about companies leading in climate action, I'd like to dive deeper into how behavioural science can be used to achieve net zero emissions for organisations. So firstly, I'm interested in how companies themselves need to make the decision to achieve net zero emissions, to hear about the science, to hear about what their peers are doing, for instance. So how does behavioural science help explain and, and, and achieve net zero emissions there? And secondly, how leaders can engage their employees to work towards net zero or alternatively, where we have green champions in organizations, how employees can drive their, their companies, their employers to um, go and, and commit to a net zero goal and to work towards achieving that. So how do you think behavioral science can help with all of that? Yeah, so. Can I, I'll chime in first and give you the high
2: level and then think, Philip, like you can go into the the, the detail because um, you've got lots of um, experience and practical examples um, from that. So first of all, um, one of the questions that you're asking is kind of how do you get that commitment and, and um, change at an organisational level? Uh, and that has to come from the, the leadership table and a leadership decision making. So often when we think of behaviour change at a higher level, it to, to get good change and cultural change often you need buy-in at the leadership table as I said. So those leaders must have a leadership shadow. they must walk the talk they must be attending the meetings um, that they need to right they've they, they've got a lead they've got to have the leadership shadow that says that there is a commitment there. Part of that then is it needs to trickle down. So there needs to be a, a normative expectation. So remember, we're re- really influenced by people's social norms. So teams need to be um, engaging and there needs to be a kind of norm, on whether that's communicated or, and or shown throughout the organisation that, that, that people are committed to, to, to doing this and, and to achieving next zero, that the company is so that there's that team level um, shift as well. Then there is um, the choice architecture type of aspect that we're thinking about. How is the organization set up to help people make decisions in a better way um, the, the, to achieve that net zero. And I'll come back to that in, in one point. And then there's also the KPIs, how people incentivized as well. So um, if it's a really large commitment, um, how do you remind people at key touch points? Um, and one of those might be KPIs, one of those might be performance um, aspects, like you, you touch on values, like, hey, how did you meet these different values over the last six months? Um, and that's sometimes linked to KPIs. So you can start to think about
0: that um, in that level. So there's some of the broad overall aspects but julia employees and influencing the companies would would that also um work from bottom up
2: yeah, so definitely. So you've got um, th- there'll definitely be a bottom up aspect as well. So and you're seeing this, so you're starting to see this uh, organizations becoming much more customer centric. Um you kind of saw this through the oil uh, the royal commission and the the banking um, aspect that happened where you're you' you're definitely getting this customer push to be, um, and staff push to be more and even stakeholder push to be more sustainable um, and to achieve net zero. And so companies are having to build this into their policy. But then for it to change within the company, you also have to have it occur at a commitment from a leadership level. And then that's got to trickle down um, to show that there's a, that there's buy-in there and that there's interest there and that, that your behavior um, is supported to act in that way. So that cultural change. When I was talking about before, too, that thinking about setting up the choice architecture in a way that people can can behave, one of the simple behavioural science strategies, if you're trying to shift any type of behaviour, but particularly behaviour that is linked to net zero, if you can make something, um, it's, it's called this East Framework, easier, more attractive, more timely, Um, and um, more social, so just got the East wrong there. But anyway, so um, easy, timely, social, attractive, then you can um, easily shift behavior. So let me give you an example. Easy is, the easier you make something, the less friction there is involved, the less hoops that people have to jump through, the less click-throughs that you even get, the more likely something is to occur. If you wanna stop a behavior from occurring, you put some friction in place and it makes it less likely to occur making something easy or more difficult shifts behaviour. Social, we talked about this before as well. So I'll actually go into, I'll actually spell out east rather than jump around. So e a attractive. So this is the example that we're talking about before. If you can draw people's attention to the information that you'd like them to see um, or to tend to or shift, then they're more likely to engage with or engage in that behavior. So making it more attractive or just reminding people, we see the big red sign, you know, we we're gonna be we're gonna pay attention to that and and and, and read it. Um, um, incentive attractive is also the incentive part that I was talking about potentially. Then you've got social, so if you can make something seem like everybody's doing it, more people are likely to do it. Uh, and then timely, if you can remind people in the moment, so making it really timely um, to engage in certain behaviours that you'd like them to do, then that can be really um, useful as well. So if I can give an example of um, timely, uh, so here it may be uh, when, when so this is something from a government level, when people are um, at, pay, at tax time going in and lodging their tax, Why don't we ask them to shift to more ethical kind of superannuation then in a timely manner um, or when they're starting to go, when they're starting a new role so that that kind of at the time point where they're likely to make a decision in that area, you can capture them. And that's much more likely to shift behaviour.
0: That's so interesting and and, and such a good um, acronym is to remember. That's really easy to remember. With the social you mentioned that people will change if others are doing it and they will follow uh, is there such a thing like a curve of ad- adoption a, a bell curve that is
1: actually something we see a lot of like the diffusion of innovation or a bell curve um it is a very attractive idea and it is a useful one conceptually but i do want to stress for anyone looking for a magic number that that really depends on the behavior you're trying to introduce and it also depends on kind of the established norm that's already in place. Um, so there's this unfortunate reality that if a norm is working against you, you have a much harder time actually changing your behavior. So let's say most people are not turning off the light and you want people to turn off the light and um, that's going to be much harder than if people are already somewhat doing it and you're just trying to get a few stragglers to, to turn off the lights in the office. Uh, But also, social norms can be very, very effective if you use them to to make behaviors more observable. Um, So there's this great example actually that was run from a a think tank, we call them nudge units in behavioral science, um, called Ideas 42 Um, And they were in Cape Town, and they were basically looking at how do you reduce um, the energy use of different offices. And so what they did was create this kind of competition between different floors of one big, big, big building. And so basically they made the energy use of specific floors visible. And so what you could see is, hey, am I above or below the norm? And it's very simple. It it didn't cost much. Um, But that tiny, tiny incentive changed all of basically the energy usage, reduced it by an average of about 9%. And if you pair that with just one person on the floor that basically goes around and tells people, hey, look at that norm, remember what others are doing, it goes down to 14%. 14% in terms of energy saving is very significant carbon wise, but also saves a lot of money to companies. Um, so it's tiny, tiny things like that that you can introduce. Um, and this is, it falls within the, the realm of nudging, uh, what Juliet was talk, talking about, kind of the, the East, make it timely, social, all these things. Um, But it is very, very effective. And it is also cost effective. So yeah, social norms are great. You can use them to promote commuting. You can use them to basically get people to fly less. Um, We we keep forgetting about the the power of us, basically. Um, So we rely a lot on information, but social is very, very important.
0: So important, and, and and I can absolutely relate to the fact that we are very competitive as human beings, <laughs> and it's such an effective strategy. So sometimes when we when we run um, engagement workshops uh, from our end, and we use uh, quizzes, and we <laughs> put people against each other, and they have to answer questions about the content we've presented, it makes for a much more engaging workshop because people are so much more into it, and uh, yeah, and super engaged. So we're talking about uh, the leadership level and companies um, putting in organizational behavior change programs and employees influencing their companies to be more sustainable and working towards net zero. But what about uh, on a company to company level? Or um, so for instance, where you have companies servicing other companies in a business to business environment, Or how do companies influence their peers? How do they influence their suppliers? Um, And also, how do they influence their customers?
1: That's actually something we work a lot on, um, trying to get companies basically to encourage the the green option with with different consumers or trying to get companies to encourage other companies to switch. And, And I think it's not too different from what we were talking about when it comes to employers trying to influence themselves or influence their employees. When it comes to behavior change, like I was saying earlier, what you need to understand is really what is driving that behavior. And so is it one of your, your six levers that's going to be useful? And then can you nudge people or do you need a, a more intensive kind of intervention? Um, and so there's certain things that businesses can do. I mean, the simplest is to just not offer an option that's not great, but going beyond that, it's also um, making things easier, making things easier for the consumer to do the green or, or the right thing in this case. So there's this very powerful tool called defaults um, in behavioral science, where basically if you present an option as either preselected or as a recommended option, people are more likely to go with that. Um, if people really have a strong preference, they are also free not to go with this option. But for example, when um, electric utilities in Europe try to get people to enroll, often they'll default people into the green option. And if you do that, far more people will default into it than if you did not have this initial um, option as the default option for people. So defaults are very, very powerful. And you can also use attention if you want to get basically either your consumers or other businesses to pay attention to specific things that you're offering. So in restaurants, for example, um, turns out that if you don't call a meal vegetarian, people are twice as likely to pick it if they don't associate as vegetarians themselves. So you just describe the food as the food that it is without putting in that label and people are far more likely to pick it. Um, That's because you're not bringing the attention onto the the social idea of of vegetarianism, right? You're just telling people what it is. And you can do that with also your business offerings. And so these are just two quick examples but again we have six levers right so there's tons of examples that that we can dig into but yeah thinking about ultimately consumers other businesses people employees they're all just people um and so we all have the same cognitive biases we also have the same levers of behavior change so it's just about identifying which ones are the best for the given target
0: yeah great okay so if but you both brought up so many good points in in how a behavioral program can be structured and what to be mindful of. So if you were to go into an organization from scratch, right? And if you were to look at developing a behavior change program from the top down, what would it look like? How would you go about developing a behavioral change strategy in an organization?
1: Mind if I take this one, Julia? Yeah, you go. (laughs) Perfect. So actually, that's kind of uh, our bread and butter here at Rare. It's really trying to to understand problems from both a behavioral science and a design perspective. Uh, So we try to merge the two. And we actually have our our own little framework, but it's not too different from other people working in this sphere. And basically, what you're going to try and do right away is to identify not necessarily the outcome right away, but what is the behavior that will lead to the outcome? And so that's really the first step that we always do when we go into a new business. What is the behavior that you want to change? Especially when we think about net zero, there's a lot of different things you can do. So we just pick a behavior, what is the best, and we'll focus on that. Then what we do is we try to spend as much time as possible understanding who are the people doing this behavior, what is blocking them from doing it, and what is motivating them to do it. Um, And again, we put all of this into the framework of the six levers of behavior change, trying to really understand what are the drivers, what are the barriers. And so it's kind of this first two step process that that's very important. And then that's when the science begins. We start building hypotheses. So if I change this one lever, do I expect this behavior to change? Um, And a lot of the time, what we're going to do is just say, oh, people don't know. Right. So we'll, we'll give them more information but we're trying to avoid this step and basically build a hypothesis on other things. Maybe it is information, but maybe it's not. So you don't want to assume, so you you hypothesize and then we get to play with the evidence. Um, So that's something that behavioral scientists are very good at. We start looking at all the literature and see who has done what, what tools are available to us, what exists, what doesn't exist, what is proven, what is unproven yet. Um, Again, not relying on assumptions. You build kind of this prototype and then you test it. Um, And these are kind of the the five first steps that we always do when we develop a a new program, either for ourselves or for another company, we go through these five first steps. um, And then afterwards, you try to scale with what you have. So you have learning, basically you have lessons learned, um, and then you take that, you modify your your intervention, and then you deploy at scale. So so it's a step-by-step process. It's iterative, but you don't have to stick to it uh, constantly going from one to the other. You can come back. Um, but what we really want is to emphasize never to assume anything, and you know, always to think about the audience you're. About. I
2: was I was just going to add, yeah, like the the value of being a behavioral scientist is we bring the ton of tools and frameworks, and we work in a collaborative approach. So. Generally speaking, the you know the organisations that we work with, they have the knowledge and the expertise of how to get there, but it's about structuring their thinking in a way um, to to then. So we've got the behavioural insights, but they've got the un, the contextual understanding that we require. So um, I really value it because it's a collaborative approach, um, which means that different teams get to learn new skills and and to get to build you know their knowledge and expertise in different areas um, as do do we do but the the definite the framework around really defining that behavior which often is um, one of the most challenging parts but we uh, we, but most organisations kind of assume that they know what the behaviour is, and then when you get in there, they're like, "Oh, hold on." So, which is you know super interesting in itself. But then that yeah understanding kind of phase, really thinking about what are the barriers and facilitators, and and the, the, then the design and, and and the test. And I think that's key aspect too. Again, is what what um, what organisations and design teams um, specifically are often um, taught is to just continue to build. And often KPIs are around continuing to build rather than continuing to test and learn. And that's a problem um, in itself. I mean, maybe I'm biased there, but um, so so what happens then is it's continually building of ideas, but without understanding what's actually effective um, and, and what's you know the highest value of investment as well um, across all different areas, but also within within um, this aspect. So uh, right now, you know, there are a lot of teams rolling out different ideas and interventions about how to get net zero. But if you stop to ask, what is the most effective? Um, how are you measuring that effectiveness? And how do you actually know it works? I would say a lot of organisations wouldn't wouldn't be too sure. I mean, there's a little bit more measurement focused um, at the moment with this. But um, so so that actual key learning and, and being able to understand is really important. The measurement aspect is very very important. Yeah,
1: oh, yeah. definitely, echo that. It's- it's a clear lack. Not a lot of testing being done across the board um, when it comes to, especially climate solutions. So yeah, a key point there mentioned by Julia.
0: And I do I do want to park that for a bit because I actually want to ask a whole question on, uh, on how we can successfully measure a um, behavior change program. But I do want to go back to what you, what you guys said earlier. You would look at the behavior you want to change, prioritize, you pick the one and you start with that. And it's a stepped implementation approach. It's it's agile. Um, you're looking for feedback. You change if it doesn't work. And that's how you design a behavioral strategy really well. But some of our clients have mentioned um, that, that they've had the problem of spending a lot of dollars on engagement programs and uh, getting little benefit from it. <laughs> what would you advise them to make sure that their behavior change program is cost effective while meeting its objectives? So there has to be,
2: first of all, an appetite of if the solutions don't work, you're still learning. So there has to be an appetite for failure and because it's not um, an actual um, aspect. So when you're going through this planning phase, A, the actual planning side of it might and could cost a bit but it's gonna save you down the long run because then you can develop many more solutions or one solution that's really effective and you're very confident in, this, in in that. Versus, as I said, running the risk previously, what I talked about, where you design, you spend money on implementation, on change teams, and that doesn't work because you've assumed you understand the problem, but you don't. So um, that's one aspect. But also actually the, the value of behavioral science and behavioral scientists talk about this a lot, is that you can design very cost-effective, simple solutions that will work at scale that are cost-effective. So, um, uh, you know, there's this famous, it's it's not a, a sort of a, a sustainability kind of example, but there's, you know, the famous fly study that, um, or fly experiment kind of behavioural science intervention that was completed in Amsterdam airport, where um, Amsterdam airport in the males bathrooms, they were spending a lot on spillage costs. Um, and and so and on, cleaning, on cleaning costs because of spillage. And basically, you know, they wanted to put up signs, first of all, to say, hey, you know, please um, be careful, but Actually, from a behavioural science perspective, if you're looking at the sign, then you're probably not actually, you're making the problem worse. Like the the aim is is not um, there. And so um, uh, someone directed uh, people's attention to the bottom of the bowl by just putting a fly, a little sticker of a fly. They're very cost effective and saves them huge amounts of money each year in now cleaning fees because there's much, much less spillage. And um, there's a range of different like I could, we, we could probably both roll off many, many different examples of how actually if you do behaviorally informed solutions, you get cost effective change at scale. Sometimes there might be cost up front of actually just understanding the problem, but that shouldn't be more than general consulting costs. Um, uh, you know, other, and and just, again, what you're getting is
0: learning and key insights along the way that you can continue to take forward. That's such a key point. So what I'm hearing is that you have to go back to basics. You have to go and understand the problem first before you design the solution. And that's probably the biggest lever you have stopping them from being too costly. That completely makes sense. Now we've discussed, uh, we, we talked about a lot of examples of how businesses can use behavioral science to achieve net zero, but what about local governments? councils are increasingly looking to educate the community on climate change so that's it's both for mitigation and also adaptation, as in being more resilient um, to bushfires, et cetera. What advice would you give local governments on how they can help the community shift to net zero? Yeah, I can,
1: I can probably take this one. Um, and it's going to build on the last three questions uh, just for, for you guys. So if we think about cost, um, kind of building things for government, Um, and also the solutions that are available for sustainability. Um, A perfect example of this and what I've been saying from the beginning really is that especially governments, we're gonna tend to rely on information campaigns. Uh, So you mentioned that earlier, stickers that remind things that basically give people information, not necessarily serve as reminders or just big information campaigns. And often just like the case of of the fly in the urinal, you might, need, you might have another letter that is as effective and costs almost nothing. So in the U.S., there's a great example, for example, um, with electricity companies, uh, where instead of having big information campaigns, what they started doing was sending a letter to different households just saying, hey, people like you use about this much electricity. You're using this much. And it could be above or below. Uh, but just sending this norm and making that behavior observable reduced Electricity usage from about 2 to 10%, depending on what kind of household you work. And that over 100,000 households really adds up. Um, and it's the price of a letter. Um, so you can really have a very, very effective tool or effective lever for very limited cost if you understand exactly what is driving the behavior. So in this case, the behavior is not observable, make it observable, tell people what the norm is. And it's much more effective than just telling people about the perks of not using as much electricity, right? And that's even tied with the cost of electricity. So so laborers are very, very useful in that case. And I think especially for governments, you're working with people and you know these people and you have access to the people, which are the experts on their own behavior. And so it's a great, great, great position to be in to kind of understand, okay, what is driving this behavior? What is the impact that we can have? But also experiment with the different tools. You're in a position where you can, Um, And you usually have access to a lot of people, a lot of different resources, Um, so you're oftentimes actually a bit freer than you think, especially compared to businesses that are tied to other performance metrics. Um, So I think it's very important for governments to realize this, but also to, to just think creatively about these problems. You don't only have to use material incentives and information.
0: That's great. So how would you find out about what is driving people's behaviors? Would you run a survey or would you run a, an engagement workshop or do, or would you do a focus groups or paid interviews? What would work best?
1: So it depends on the problem. Um, here in this case, so I, I have certain projects where we're going to work with survey data about a specific behavior where we're able to get very specific quantitative data um, about norms about why people aren't doing certain things but usually you don't start with quantitative data right away right if you don't understand a problem run interviews with people ask people directly why what's stopping them what would encourage them to do something so what's great with the behavioral sciences is that uh, i think we're a perfect example i'm a neuroscientist i work very much with, with a lot of quanti- uh, quantitative quantitative um data and then Juliet here is a psychologist she probably has as much experience in quantitative data but also qualitative data and we also have anthropologists sociologists in the field so everyone has an expertise in specific types of data collection Um, and we tend to use all of it Um, so we don't just say we're going to look at one type of information and stick to it we really say okay what is available to us And, and what is the best tool to understand what we need to know And I think that's something where a collaboration with a behavioral scientist or a sociologist, psychologist, whatever you want to call them, as long as they study behavior, is going to be a huge advantage for these groups.
0: Mm, Great. Okay. So I want to talk about COVID and what we can learn from the recent experience. Much of our behavior is habitual, such as jumping on the plane to go to Melbourne, but The recent pandemic has shown us that major disruptions are capable of reshaping our entire social practices quickly and across the whole country, such as, for instance, working from home, conducting meetings online, uh, which, by the way, is great from an emissions perspective. But on another level, COVID has also shown us that many, not all, but many businesses can change really rapidly. Um, So for instance, previously some businesses would have discouraged people to work from home but then they had to adapt really quickly. So behaviors were adapted and practices and even the work culture um, was adapted and companies had to innovate to remain successful and to stay in business or maybe even increase their business. Is it possible that companies can apply this learning to climate change as well? Uh, Can businesses identify with the immediacy of needing to act on climate change, the need to innovate, to adapt and to change their business to slash emissions really quickly while remaining profitable? Or are climate impacts just not tangible enough to inspire this kind of step-changing behavior uh, and we will largely largely revert back to business as usual once the restrictions are lifted, um, accepting the things that you think will stick.
1: I think that the COVID situation is a, is a great example of learning, um, but it's also a great example of how not, behavioral science is not going to be the solution to everything, um, and, and we've seen great uses of behavioral science through the COVID pandemic, and also terrible uses of it. Um, But it's a great learning opportunity. It's what Juliet was talking about earlier. We're testing things, we're learning, and we're talking about failures here. Um, I think the best thing that we can learn from COVID, though, is probably that as as we're going to reemerge out of this, and as we are reopening, um, basically, it's the perfect time to start establishing new habits with your employers, your employees, or to start really shifting kind of what are the incentives for companies to be doing specific things. So during COVID, most of us were kind of forced to change or companies were forced to change because there were real immediate impacts. Um, So you didn't want your employees to get sick, or you didn't want the threat of being sued by your employees if they got sick, right? These are very real impacts that could happen in the present. With climate change, obviously the impacts will happen slightly later. Um, So there's obviously a huge aspect of policy that has to be Introduced at some point to, to align material incentives with kind of the realities of climate change. But then also, we are re- reopening, we are starting this out of COVID. So, what are the internal incentives that companies can start putting in place to, to help people shift their behavior now that we are returning to the office, that we are commuting again? Um, and if you look at like the habit literature in behavioral sciences, there's a lot of information about how when you have a big shift, a moment of transition we call, um, that's the best time to start new habits. So if your employees weren't commuting before or they weren't using public transportation because they haven't done it in a while, now is the time to introduce them to a new system, a new way of doing things. And I think that is probably, if not the best learning of COVID, the best opportunity presented by COVID. It's really now's the time to do it because if you don't do it now, you're probably going to delay it afterwards anyways.
2: Definitely. I think, um, can I add to that too is so. There is this unique time where people's behaviour so is more malleable to change. Um, I think it's quite interesting what you're just saying too about maybe it's about time to redesign the policies around what supports. So if it is useful for, and it is, like right, if people shouldn't, if, if 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 being at home and on Zoom is better for 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 the for your sustainability goals, then maybe it is about the flexibility and in, 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 in thinking about some of your 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 choices um, and your policies around that, but also. Uh, I think another interesting learning from COVID was the the ability so, so you still need to give people an ability and behavioral science to talk about talk behavioral scientists talk about this the ability to have a choice so you shape the choice architecture but you give people a choice um and so you don't want to create a drastic change where you kind of have these mandates like you do a little bit um, different now around having everyone has to get vaccinated right everybody has to do this that's what we call kind of like a shove almost and and people respond really poorly so if i can give an example and this is just a hypothesis um based on you know, some experience, but also is, is if you look at what's happened in Melbourne with the forced vaccination of, um, of uh, people at construction sites, probably a better response, and this is my opinion, is that you force people, you say 80% of people um, on sites, 80% of people have to be vaccinated, 20% don't. Then you'll got, slowly what you'll find is the social norms. So eighty percent get more opportunities. So those twenty percent that don't aren't vaccinated um, get less opportunities, but they still have a choice and they can still work. You're not restricting their choice. Over time, they socialize with the people at their eighty percent, and they realize that there's no negative effects. That you know that they're, they're more open, and then slowly more and more people um, are vaccinated on sites but they feel that they have a choice and an option. Um, And and so it's a better behavioural design in terms of people don't push back. More complicated because of COVID. So, you know, um, I I don't wanna get into the do's and don'ts of that, but in the case of of thinking about um, encouraging people's behaviour towards climate change um, and, and towards these sustainability efforts, it's still about giving them the choice but making the desired choice and decision much more easy to engage in, or you know um, uh, that's where this comes into play as well.
0: I love this example so much, and I, I can personally attest to, to the effectiveness of a choice strategy. I remember when I brought up my kids when they were little and you, you, you give them two choices, healthy food number one or healthy food number two. They feel like they have the choice and whatever choice they're making is a good choice. So, yeah, it's a very, very effective strategy. I really like it. Um, But let me shift gears uh, for a while and go back to a topic we touched on earlier and i did want to bring it up to make it its own question because to me it's so important and it's about how you can measure the success of a behavioral strategy so we're usually asked by our clients what the initiatives we propose they undertake will provide in terms of benefits to them and how it is measured so for example If we recommend a company installs a megawatt of solar panels across their facilities, and it will cost them over a million dollars to install. They want to know what the return on investment is going to be, what the payback will look like, uh, will they get their original investment back in less than three or four years. So we get all these questions and we can answer them fairly easily. Because we have the data, we can analyze it, we can inspect the roof, we can inspect electrical infrastructure, we can design the solar system, we can price it accurately, and we can put the exact dollar uh, value on the savings. But behavior change initiatives might be less clear, or the, the benefits might be less clear, and it, overall it's less tangible. So can you talk us through what kind of evidence you would typically bring to convince an organization to implement behavior change, and importantly, how you would measure the benefits?
1: Yeah, so I think what you described first is actually the first hurdle we face as behavioral scientists. Um, A lot of people will look at engineers when designing a technological solution, but when we look at behavior, most people rely on their own assumptions or their own expertise, but it's important to know that it's not because we walk on roads every day that we're all engineers, right? And it's not because we make choices every day that we fully understand the whole scope of biases and behaviors that can occur. So I think that that's the first set, the mindset that really needs to change. It's how people look at behavior change and not as an assumption or a thing to test, but really as a science that needs to be established and used. And then from that point onwards, if you engage with behavioral scientists or you go through a framework, you'll notice that maybe 23 years ago we wouldn't have the same accuracy in, in behavior change predictions that we have now. But with the amount of evidence we now have um, these days, there's actually a lot of precision in what we can expect in terms of behavior change. And um, so we know that nudges, for example, at scale usually lead to 1 to 2% behavior change. Um, so if you want to deploy One specific nudge, you already know that you can expect probably a 1% to 2% change in, let's say, employees eating less meat or employees flying less. Um, When you think about defaults, we know that's around a 25% change. So defaults we've talked about a bit earlier. Social norms also have predictions. So we have these ranges now that we can actually use to, to look at what success might look like and also what predictions and investments might be worth it. And that's something that also is replicated when you look at engineering. Um, people will be given a range of what are the possible risks, what are the possible costs, what are the possible benefits? And it's the same thing when it comes to behavior change. So I think it, in one sense, it's a mind shift that has to happen. Um, and maybe behavioral scientists, we haven't been as great as we'd like to think that, at showing people that this is a science and, and that results are reliable, but we are now at the point where they are. And I think that's very important to recognize. Um, that we can make good predictions. And then if you're unsure, just divide all of your different steps into, uh, we call this a theory of change, but basically a step-by-step process where you can look at what are the behaviors that have to change, but to change what are the beliefs or the barriers that have to change. And so you can make predictions of how many of these barriers and beliefs have to change before a set amount of behaviors will also change. You can have all of these different properties that you're measuring as you go through your project to know, is this successful? Is this what you expect? Or do you have to realign your expectations?
2: Also, uh, I think you just made a really key example is when we set the behavior up front, we try and make up measurable so that you can... Add metrics to that, so you know changing. Um, we want you know we want to reduce the percentage of people that eat meat by two percent. Generally, you will be able to maybe we you know working with a company where you can track. So maybe it's Google and you can track how many of their employees are eating meat, right? Um, or their meat weight or consumption. Or, so so we often make a strong case to link the behavior to something that is trackable right up front. Um, then the the savings at the end. Uh, is, is also so you know it's about a learning the language of different stakeholders and what's of interest to them and even if you're working with researchers what's of interest to them and and co- making a cohesive um story there but the key thing too is that experimentation phase um for for us so often what you will do is you have the behavior so meat consumption and we want to change it by two percent through the understand phase we realize that um people aren't uh, people uh, are like there are a variety of reasons, taste bad. Um, people didn't even realize, understand that people don't know what is good or bad meat. I'm not doing a very bad job, right? There are all these different things. But the key driver is that um, people actually have the intention to eat less meat. They just have less time, and the meat is right at the front of the counter and it's much quicker to get. Um, and so, and you know, there's bigger piles so that people's attention are drawn to it. So the intervention is then making, putting the meat at the back of the um, at the back of the store, or a back of the canteen in this case, and putting the veggies or the non-meat alternatives at the front. What you then might do is you test that. So some people would be in a, or some in this level, some either individuals or um, or uh, organisations. So um, will be at in the control condition where it's just business as usual. So or some offices is what I was going for. So. Um, Google office in Sydney is no meat. I mean, it's not completely controlled, um, can um, meat at the front of the counter and Google Singapore now or something is um, meat at the, the back. And then you can, and that's so, so you have your control group and then your treatment or your intervention group. And then you still measure the end outcome. And then that's how you can see the change and the value. If you roll it out to everyone straight away, The change that you see may be because of your intervention, but it may not be. So if I can give an example, um, a very broad example. So when I was working at Commonwealth Bank, looking at financial wellbeing, it was very different. But one intervention that we rolled out, we rolled out in October and we looked at the results in December and January. We wanted to reduce people's transactions in a certain area. What you saw overall is that people's transactions increased. So if we rolled this intervention out to everybody, we would have assumed it was having a negative impact on people or it was not useful for, um, you know, and so we would have, like, not thrown it out, obviously, but, you know, redesigned or assumed it was a waste of money. When we had a treatment and control, what you saw is that by virtue of seasonality, going up to Christmas, everyone's spending more, everyone's spending increased. But the intervention that we introduced significantly reduced people's spending compared to the other group. And so it was actually hugely effective. It was very good for financial wellbeing. Um, And it was only by experimenting and showing that, that you, and, and having that control and that treatment group, you could actually see the impact and the impact was huge and it was like such a win at the beginning you know it was it was a really great um, f- one of the first experiments around win in a behavioral science team to then say this is the value you see the behavior change and then you can link that often to all of the other um, changes as well
0: uh, that, that that really makes a lot of sense uh, I'm just reflecting back on what you said the examples that you brought up so for instance with uh, reducing meat consumption in organizations and putting it to the back um, uh, I can see how this would work in practice. So for instance, if you are an organization that does a lot of food and catering, say for instance, an aged care provider, um, there's lots of different pressures, of course, being an aged care provider, but um, part of the diet that that you supply is is very heavily meat-based. And I can see from a measurement perspective and behavior change program, how you could drive um, people to potentially Um, eat less meat and you could measure that because if food and catering is such a big source of supply chain emissions because of all the agriculture that's involved is heavily carbon intensive the food that we eat especially if it's uh, meat and dairy based so if you you could measure that in terms of emissions by uh, looking at the expenditure that goes to meat-based products dairy-based products and see what kind of effect this has so there's uh, there's so many ways you can actually pinpoint that in, in in measuring it accurately just like you said before so obviously there's lots of benefit um in in these programs and you can measure success and it's it's by um by making sure that you define the metrics up front i think that was also a really key point that you have the, the the trackable metrics defined when you start so that you can make sure to measure that but apart from the obvious aspects of making sure that the behavior has now changed and the emissions have now reduced do you think that there is an additional benefit of having inspired staff and alignment on something like climate throughout the organization does it have lots of other benefits as well that could be measured like for instance indirect benefits
2: do you mean um, staff like
0: champions of change?
2: Is that what you're sort of asking, or are you meaning um, benefits to staff? Because like, so I, I work on a lot of social impact um, projects where, again, so if I can think about, it, so so maybe so I did my PhD in gambling behaviour. I've worked with some companies looking at how you can design better for 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 gambling, particularly in banks, and. the Individuals love that, like, because they actually feel like um, from a purpose perspective that their role is having a greater impact on um, on the external world other than, you know, them just turning up to work or sometimes feeling like, unfortunately, like a clogger in the wheel, right, is that they're really making positive change. Yeah, they're working towards something bigger. Um, so there is that aspect. The hard thing is, um, as we talked about before, climate change is a, something that we're going to see the benefits of in the in the very you know distant future um so so thinking about the reward in the moment so whether that's even feedback like look you have your phone tells you that you've actually saved now the equivalent of one year of i'm not not quite sure you know fill up something that feels really good then that feedback aspect is um, quite good, but that's a bit different. Then, so that's like kind of how you motivate the staff versus then the. Do you think we need some kind of champions of change, or which would help with the social aspect of cult, of, of of the cultural norm?
0: Yeah, I was, just, I was just, I was just wondering because you have um, people, you motivate them, you do behavior change programs, you you're successful in changing their behavior, but there must be something else as well because you're rallying everyone behind one topic. And there must be so many other benefits for organisations than just um, like the behaviour change, yes, the emissions reduction, yes, but to unite people on on one topic, that must have additional benefits in terms of engagement and uh, potentially employee acquisition or retention benefits that could be potentially tracked as well, I'm thinking. Definitely. So can I just pull out one thing there? You do not have to rally the troops to get
2: people's behavior to shift. So one of the key aspects here, and one of the most effective ways to 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 change behavior, is through like defaults, as we talked about, right? So, um, so we haven't rallied the troops in Australia to contribute more to our superannuation. It's a default option, um, in in some ways. So if you can make sure that the policy and the default is that every you know every airline booked, you are carbon offset, or you know your emission offset. Sorry, so you know what I mean. Um, That is much better. The lights that automatically go out when you leave the organisation is much better, the default, than, um, you know, relying on the human who is more like Homer Simpson and forgets. Like, we all forget things. Um, So you don't have to at all, and even when you design the environment well, it isn't, you don't have to do that because, and to get a specific, oh, yes, we're doing more for climate change. So we don't need to rally the troops to get the behaviour change that we need. Um, but making the impact of their behavior salient to kind of then potentially rally troops d- will can have really significant benefits on on morale on you know just again because people feel like they have a purpose they feel like they're making a difference um, they feel like their actions you know are, are having a broader broader influence and they can they can see that so, Two aspects there. Don't need to rally the troops. Um, can really well. We can shift, and there's many, many studies that show you shift behavior and people's attitudes change. Um, but we want to still give people a choice. But also then, if you do highlight the impact of their behavior and how it is having a positive outcome for the future and for other people's lives, then that is um, has huge benefits as well. And you can capture those through. You can capture those through surveys, but you can capture them through even like looking at basic business metrics. So how many sick days do people have? How many people are leaving? How many people are staying? Like, they're proxy measures, but um, you, you can make some interferences off, off those.
1: Yeah, if, I, if I can jump in very quickly, I think a, a great example is, um, in what you're talking about, Barbara, here with, with kind of rallying the troops and all this, that's gonna be part of your your toolkit, right? So what Juliet described is, what if we don't use that in our toolkit, but but then there's also ways to to do use it. And I think that my favorite study when it comes to this, and especially like rallying troops, um, is when you think about people's pride in their business or their organization, who they work with. Um, And the most typical study here um, was actually done, they put students in a room with a cake. Um, and they told three different groups of students, basically, one just got information about the cake, the second group were told, imagine how prideful you would be if you don't eat the cake, and the other group was told, imagine how ashamed you would be if you ate the cake, Um, and the people that felt pride, that were given the pride condition, were four times more likely to show self-restraint than than the other conditions. Um, They were the most successful ones, because they felt pride in what they were doing, and I think, pride when you're talking about rallying the troops is a very very important thing and I think obviously I'm not an expert here I work in conservation so anyone feel free to disagree with me but young people want to feel a part of a movement they want to feel proud of the organizations that they work with and that's something that we're seeing change across the board across different generations and across people joining the work sector so I think if you if you are looking at all the levers that you have pride and and really creating this momentum within your own organization for your employees and pride in your employers uh, is going to be very very important because it is more likely to to lead to behavior change but it also might be more likely to lead people to basically adopt spillover behaviors at home and so if i am being very green at work why wouldn't i be at home if work is helping me by sponsoring or subsidizing my getting an electric car that also impacts everyone else at home, and then, hey, I become part of the social norm in my neighborhood and might also influence other people that live around my place. Um, so, so it's important to understand how all of these levers interact, but yeah, it's a toolkit that we have and we just need to understand what is best in that moment.
0: That is wonderful, because I'm just imagining as an organization, if you are committed to achieve net zero, you're engaging your staff around these matters, so you're tracking progress, you're changing behaviors, you're changing social norms. People take that back into the communities, back into the families where it affects even wider change. So then the impact of that one company that makes the change is so much bigger because the actual decarbonization impact on society is a much uh, greater thing and greater than the company itself. Such a good point. We've so had so many interesting um, points across uh, the different methods you, you use as behavioural scientists. What would be your key takeaway messages for a company that is actually looking to engage their the staff to help achieve net zero? What, what would you recommend? I think for me, one of the aspects here is
2: that it solutions can be very cost effective. It is, I'm going to give you three, sorry. It is very important to understand the problem first and, and, and doing that groundwork. But but see, the easier you can make something like right that the easier the pathway the easier is so whatever the behavioral problem is the easier you make it to occur the more likely it will um the more friction you put in place the less likely it will occur and I say that because sometimes you want either one so sometimes you want to make it harder to do an act- activity which is then useful and sometimes you make it easier so I think that for me is it um actually I'm going to add one more sorry is um is the importance of considering the decision environment often we think about a focusing on the individual and changing an individual but actually changing the um, individuals are more resistant to change changing the environment helps people shift much easier because they're often in automatic kind of operating system and what
0: about you philip yeah i think
1: it's kind of a recap of actually what Juliet just said so going back (laughs) to, to what we talked about the entire time um remember if we go back to the core of behavioral science so our decision making is kind of on a spectrum from automatic to to more rational, more slow and thought of. Um, And what I really want listeners, I hope to to remember is that most of our decisions are not in the slow rational side of the spectrum. They're really in this more automatic, very efficient, but very automatic and prone to biases side of our decision making spectrum. Um, So when you think about how to engage employees, how to change behavior, don't focus on only the levers that will affect the rational side, really think about Juliet was saying, the choice architecture, the social environment, and also the emotions that you want people to feel. Um, and it's really creativity that's gonna get us out of the climate change mess that we're in. And I think now more than ever, we are able to, to start leveraging the evidence tied to this creativity. So, so it's really, what I hope people get from this is to, to think of the toolkit of behavior changes more than just three levers. We have six, we might even have more. Um, so, so yeah, focus on that.
0: So what if uh, people wanted to find out more do you have any book recommendations
1: yeah actually it, it's even simpler um we have a platform called behavior.rare.org that i would really recommend people to go to it kind of guides you through the process of how we design behavioral interventions and think about the different levers of behavior change it gives case studies gives examples of what you can do in your own business so i would push people towards behavior.rare.org um, it's a free platform is really there to help people make the shift towards greener behavior
2: yeah I would second that I mean the the, the website is amazing so like it has some really practical aspects I mean if there's books as a kind of even just general behavioral science books um without being you know stereotypical because it is like the the thinking fast and slow like Daniel Cardiman and and the nudge book you know by Richard Thaler and and so and Cass Sunstein like I mean they're they're kind of the basic 101 of of behavioural science but there's so many tools and and companies out there too now looking um and that have developed good good aspects um good good toolkits around this so the east is the behavioral insights team um ideas 42 um do do a lot but also i think um both of us are probably very uh, approachable so feel free to, 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 to reach out to either of us and, and we can kind of point you in the right direction or uh, you know answer some of the, the questions um, that people may have. How can people connect with you? Uh, so for me LinkedIn or I've got a website behavioralscience.com.au which is uh, has all my email and, and, and contact number um, so or, or LinkedIn Juliet Tobias Webb
1: I was about to give my phone number, but I think that that's not what you're asking. Uh, no, so you can either reach me also on LinkedIn or um, on Twitter. Uh, if you anyone can DM me, um, so it's Philippe underscore um, Bujold. So my my full name. I feel free to reach out. That we're always there to help. Um, so yeah, reach out with any questions about behavioral science.
0: For our listeners, we we'll put um, all the links and the book recommendations, in as well as the contact details of our guests in the show notes. That's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for your time, Juliette and Philippe. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Philippe Bujon and Dr. Juliette Tobias-Webb talking about how behavioral science can help companies achieve net zero emissions. If you know another person who you think will enjoy this podcast, Please let them know so that more people can hear about best practice stories of how organizations are moving to net zero emissions. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next episode.
1: As always, you can find more information in the show notes of this podcast.
0: If you enjoyed this show, please rate and review it on your favorite platform. Thanks for listening and we look forward to having you on our next show.